Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts. Hello and welcome to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. Today we're going to be diving into the top news stories of the week. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you this week? Fantastic. We got some more stories to cover. I'm excited. Yep. Never stops. <laughs> <laughs> it's always always news somewhere, right? Kind of like it's always five yeah. o'clock somewhere. There's always news somewhere. Yeah. So, and we always have to pick and choose what we can cover. This is such a busy industry. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I know you guys do a ton of, of writing during the week. And so now we're just kind of how, how many stories are we covering today? We're going to look at uh, four stories from the week um, from our coverage. So we're going to do two that focus on a couple of trends we covered in the multifamily sector, uh, a piece that has to do with CMBS loans on uh, retail properties, and then, a, and then a last piece that's just a kind of a quick update on investment in the self-storage sector. All right. Sounds good. Where do we start? So first story that um, just going to recap is a, a piece that we actually posted on Thursday. It's about how labor shortages in the construction industry have had sort of an unexpected effect uh, when it comes to multifamily rents, which doesn't seem like they would necessarily. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how you make the correlation there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which was like, you know, my for a reaction as well when we were doing the piece, like how are the, how do you get from A to B? Um, but, but basically what's happening is the pressures on the construction market and the, the shortage in five and finding skilled workers that can actually complete the projects that are um, that developers are trying to do is slowing down the pace of development uh, a bit. So mm -hmm. what that is meaning is that that demand growth is uh, sorry supply growth is slowing while demand is mm -hmm. still pretty strong. So it's just creating it's it's disrupting the 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 what was the what the supply demand balance should be to the point now where you know, more demand than the supply can out keep up with. So once, you know, once you do that, then suddenly, yes, then you're going to have pressures on upward pressures on rents because occupancies are going up. You can't, you know, you're as you're filling all these units and that's that's the end result. Hmm. Do we see anything on the horizon as far as the labor shortages changing or are we still I mean, is there anything? I Coming. I don't think so. I mean, like you know, this is the job market that we're in, and the and and the um the overall employment pic picture is you know low unemployment and huge demand and not enough people that to fill those fill some of these jobs. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't necessarily think it's like a you know like I mean from a developer standpoint, it's it's obviously good <laughs> because it means that higher rents are higher incomes for owners and developers. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not so great for renters who might have been expecting things to be a little bit more affordable than 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 they are becoming. And I think it's also possibly a good thing in that one of the classic things that that can happen in real estate is too much, you know, overdevelopment. You know, that's how we end a lot of cycles or mm -hmm. get to the, you know, the when things turn is like things are going great. We, you know, get too many construction cranes growing, build too many buildings that people can fill. So this actually is a counterweight to the potential of overdevelopment within the multifamily sector 
which has been a frankly, which has been a a, a looming concern for a couple of years, and it's certainly a has happened in a, in some markets. It's not happened in every market, but there has been some overdevelopment in parts of the country. Um, so this is kind of putting a break on that. So I think actually on a net basis, this is probably a it's it's sort of an unexpected benefit from from the strong job market to create this break on um, multifamily development, which is then ultimately manifesting in these uh, rent growth being a little bit stronger than 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 what people had anticipated. Yeah. So, and may, you may or may not know the answer to this question. I'm just curious if we were to see a increase in laborers for, for whatever reason uh, and, and buildings were being built quicker. Have you ever seen a, a situation in a market where all of a sudden building owners are reevaluating going, you know, I should probably lower the rent a little bit to be more competitive with these newer buildings that are that are being built and and the influx of, of available properties. Have you ever seen something like that? I mean, yeah, I think that would be the inverse. You know, if if the development pipeline can speed up again and some of the and the projects are are delivered faster, there's more supply. If the supply demand come out of imbalance in the other direction, that creates a downward pressure on rents. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that would be the upshot is if, if we do get to if, if this backlog and or if this this labor shortage is resolved in some way to the point where development can pick up again, then, then it'll change those. It will change those supply demand balances again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just one you know, thing that I wanted to also point out with that was in the story, too, was so just like in terms of the concrete terms, what we're talking about is that in June, the average rent on all types of apartments rose by 0.7% uh, on a three-month basis. Uh, that's according to data from Yardi Matrix. Um, similarly, looking for at from another provider, CoStar, they break their break their statistics into what they consider four and five star apartment buildings, which generally we would call class A buildings. They experienced annual rental growth of 3.1% year over year as as of the end of the second quarter. Growth at class B properties slowed down to about two and a half percent. But you know, so a little bit a little bit less, but it's still pretty good. And then at one and at what they call one and two star properties, annual rent growth had averaged two and a half percent as of the end of the second quarter so this was something that so the upshot is this is you know the rent growth is something that we saw across all all quality of of mm -hmm. uh, apartment buildings all right david anything else on that story or are we moving on so um this was looking at a different set of data talking to some other experts um it just was about what's happening what kinds of projects are prevalent right now in terms of development and finding that developers in the U.S. are continuing to build more low-rise apartment buildings than any other type of construction. Now, this is, you know, this is not a change from historical patterns. Uh, low, um, low-rise apartments, which we could define as garden-style apartments, which are about three stories high, they typically fit about 26 apartments on an average acre, and. This has historically been the most prevalent type of apartment construction, you know, especially like, you know, if you're talking about anything built outside of a city. So between 1990 and 1999, according to, again, data from Yardi Matrix, about 90 percent of all new apartment constructions uh, were low rise buildings. So what I think is striking is that now, um, the number 2018 was that it's still more than half, um, but it's only 50, 56% of construction now that are in low rise buildings. So mm. 
I think so. It's sort of like I think you know what what the point of the story is is that while there's an awful lot of attention paid to high-rise urban apartment buildings and in some cases trying to build those kind of projects in suburban settings and certainly there's an uptick of it it's it's not the dominant way that apartments are um built yet Mm -hmm. um you know even though there's a clear trend line at work here which is you know those have gone from being like trophy exceptional projects to being almost you know to being more of the norm but still you know on balance the bread and butter of doing the garden style, more you know, low-rise projects is is a pretty consistent and pretty strong part of the business, and that's true in a lot of different markets. Even in like markets that you would think would be uh, more dominated by by high-rise construction, like Brooklyn and Queens are 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 two of the most active markets in the U.S. for the number of low-rise apartment projects completed um, in the past decade or so. Really? It seems strange to me because you've got limited space. Why wouldn't you go up to 8, 10, 12 stories? I mean, there's, there are parts of Brooklyn and Queens that are that are more spread out. And I think also, you know, the thing about building, while there certainly are those projects getting built, it's harder to get those zoned and it's harder to get those approved in some cases. So gotcha. there may only be, even in places, even in some urban settings, there may only be a certain part of the part of the the city or a certain part of the borough in this case where you could where you can get that done. Well, you know, I I understand that. I'm sure there's regulations all over the place for how high a building can go, but in those areas where a building can be 10 stories, I would think that somebody would want to get close to that instead of doing a three-story building or a four-story building. I mean, obviously I've never done all the research on cost per floor per, you know, units and, and all that jazz. So somebody much smarter than me has done that, I'm sure. But it just seems silly if if you have that option to go up a few more floors. I would think that that would be more lucrative in, in the long run, but I could be completely wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong. I think that that's, I mean, but there, there are parts of Brooklyn, like, you know, downtown Brooklyn, you do have that, you know, and it's just, I think, I think it is the, but mm-hmm. it then, but there are, I think there are parts of even parts of Brooklyn and Queens where you, you know, you, where you can only do low rise. Got it. So, um, you know, but then, and then I think there are other places where they might really want to do like, you know, there are markets where developers I think would love to go higher and just right now can't because of the local zoning conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and what's also interesting looking at some of the data is that where the markets where you're seeing the, a, a lot of this construction still being completely dominant are, are places like Texas, places like Cal- California, places like you know in in uh, in and around Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So where that's where it's just still this the traditional garden style apartment buildings are the ones that are um being built up to up to the point where they're almost like 90 percent of the projects in those markets got it is it easier to get loans for smaller buildings i mean i would assume so because you're you're borrowing less money so maybe that's also a factor um that's that's definitely could be a factor that also often is contingent on the quality of the borrower and their track record Mm -hmm. so like if you have more of a track record as being a successful developer you're more likely to get more financing of course yeah Um, and the more equity you can bring to the table but yeah for sure um smaller 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 less complex construction projects i think would be uh easier to get to get financing for yeah that that guy billy bob that you know, built his last condo out of sponges, probably, probably not going to get that next loan there, bud. (laughs) So I get that completely. All right, David, what is our next story we're covering today? So now we're going to shift gears and, um, 
take a look at what's been happening in terms of um, CMBS loans for retail projects. Um, I think one of the things that we've talked about fairly, you know, that, that we've talked about consistently in this podcast in the past few episodes and also has just been a, a trend um, more broadly within the commercial real estate sector is just the struggles, the continued struggles of the retail sector as it goes through dealing with the pressures and the evolution uh, being forced by the rise of online sales and both how that's putting some retailers out of business, transforming how others mm -hmm. do their business, um, creating a lot of vacancies. So it's creating a lot of pressures on retail landlords. What um, this piece was looking at is how, you know, given some of the risks um, associated with retail, how are lenders approaching financing the sector? In some of the recent data, what it's shown is that that CMBS lenders are are doing, you know, and again, I guess it's given all that, it's not going to be a surprising finding, but that CMBS lenders are doing less business or doing a, a lower percentage of their overall lending volume mm -hmm. is going to the retail sector. Uh, so they now are, you know, if you compare it to their books um, and the percentage that may be going to office, hotel, industrial, retail, other Got sectors. It. Historically, you know, even just a few years ago, maybe 30 to 40 percent of their business uh, on CMBS issuance was for retail properties. Um, year to date in 2019, only 15 percent of CMBS of issuance has, has been gone to the retail sector. Mm, all right. So I think that's kind of like the headline, which is that so CMBS lenders are are taking a little bit of a are being a little more hesitant yeah, about, more about getting into the sector. Yeah. Um, the projects that they are going after, then not surprisingly, are you know are they want you know what what they're calling what one of the people we talked to called bulletproof. So it would be the projects that are the highest quality assets, that have the best tenants, that have the highest sales per square foot. The ones that are the most basically, you know, riding out the storm the best are going to mm -hmm. be the ones that can get the financing that they need right now. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> Everybody wants a bullet, bulletproof program. So, um, you know, I think another aspect of what the data from the sector is showing us is that, you know, one of the ways that we look at the CMBS sector, since these are usually about 10-year loans, um, and you're monitoring those pools over time to see what the delinquency rate is, you know, within the pools, how, how what, per what percentage of the loans are 30, 60, 90 days uh, delinquent. Um, currently, there's a couple, and, and right, and there's a couple of um, data providers that keep a really close eye on this. It's Moody's and Trap, mm -hmm. uh, and for, and for, and they're both telling a similar story, which is that the delinquency rate for the retail sector is higher than it is for um, any other commercial property type. They have slightly different numbers, but they're close enough. Uh, Moody's reports the delinquency rate at five and a half percent right now, uh, whereas Trap says it's about four point four percent compared to the broader um, commercial real estate number of, in Moody's case, 3.5%, and in Trepp's case, 2.8%. So in either, the retail delinquency rate is about two percentage points higher in both sets of numbers. Mm -hmm. All right, David, what else do we need to know about this story? So the one, the last piece of it is that, you know, those numbers that I'm referring to are, are mostly for loans 
that that may have been done um, up to ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, which was some some of that stuff may even be like the tail end of the before the the financial crisis, um, which you know a lot of it, which we roughly call CMBS 1.0. Now we're into CMBS 2.0, and we're still in the early stages of some of those of those retail deals. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of looking at so so, so there's some looking forward now around okay is that same kind of delinquency problem going to show up in the the newer batch of loans and the early indications are you know the the, the delinquency rates are not as high uh, but it's it is already showing up in some of the newer loans too so mm-hmm. um, this is not some this is not an issue that's going to be re, that's going to be resolved through the mechanisms of the lending that's happened this is this is a, a, a foundational issue that's in the retail sector that's that's going to affect all of the loans that, that exist. So we can kind of then move on to our final story of the week. Sure. Uh, which is an update on investments um, in the stealth storage sector. It's a sector we, we you know, we tend to focus more on the, the major food groups of industrial, office, retail, uh, multifamily, uh, hotel as well. Self-storage is one of the ones we don't touch on as much, but this week we did have an update just based on some of the numbers we, we were getting from some of the from some of the brokers and some of the, the data providers. That just shows that the average price of self-storage properties is continuing to rise. Mm-hmm. Um, investors are especially interested in older Class B and Class C properties. Um, and as one of the brokers we, we spoke to, uh, Ryan Clark, who's the director of investment sales for Skyview Advisors, said most of the new money entering the market is doing so with an investment thesis centered around pursuing value-add deals. I think what they're seeing is that looking for some of these Class B and Class C properties, there's more potential upside. So prices are continuing to rise for for those assets. In contrast, the average prices for Class Class A properties are have not are not rising as fast as they are for some of those Class B and C properties in the sector. On balance, what we're seeing is that uh, from data from Yardi Matrix, it's our third time uh, quoting their data this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Class A properties, Class A self storage properties, sold for an average of $118 per square foot so far in 2019. That's actually down $3 per square foot from uh, compared to uh, 2016. That seems pretty large. I mean, large drop. Yeah, I mean, $3 per square foot, and considering that general prices for a lot of assets have been. You know, have been rising during mm-hmm. this period, mm-hmm. um, and then the and then you know, when you specific and that's more broadly, but when you specifically even talk about self storage, their numbers show that prices on Class B properties rose to ninety dollars per square foot, up from eighty six dollars per square foot, and on Class C properties they rose from sixty two dollars to seventy two dollars. Mm-hmm. So so basically they 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 fell three dollars per square foot for the for the Class A properties. They rose four dollars per square foot for Class B, and they rose ten dollars per square foot for Class C. So there's this compression um, in a, in the spread between the, the the highest tier and lowest tier properties in terms of what investors are paying, um, driven by the perceived upside that they um, see on those respective tiers. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our. Um, takeaway from that one and you know i think overall this just you know self-storage continues to be a popular niche play for investors in part because it's seen as a safe seen as a safe 
asset class. There's not a lot of um, it's it's seen as being recession resilient, um, and I think overall um, the dynamics point to investors wanting to take advantage of that. Nice. Sounds pretty good for investors. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we want to see. We hopefully that this uh, you know continue to ride this cycle out as far as as long as we can. Yeah, absolutely. All right, David. Thank you so much for the uh, for the updates this week, and we'll look forward to uh, your reports next week as well. All right, sounds good. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, look for more coverage and more stories that we didn't touch on today at our at nreionline.com. Perfect. And thank you all for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, you're missing out. So please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the NREI Weekender, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. See you next time. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 